Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hover.com, who provide domain names for your ideas and emails for your domain name. We use Hover for our email and for our domains, and you will get 10% off of your first purchase with Hover when you use this promo code, SANDWICH. This episode is also brought to you by Carnivore Club, which is a subscription to some of the highest quality cured meat in the world. If you are ready to join the exclusive club for meat lovers, go to carnivoreclub.co. C-O, not C-O-M, and sign up to get your first box for 15% off using the promo code CanadaLand, not sandwich. ever happen to you? You torrent a movie or a TV show and you get a scary email from some lawyer, some company claiming to represent the rights holder, the rights that you just infringed. You get the sense that you're in big trouble and you follow the email's instructions and you get in touch with them. And before you know it, they've sent you a bill, an offer for a cash settlement for your copyright infringement, pay it off and they won't take you to court. A lot of you know what I'm talking about and have had this happen to you. Some of you have not. Here's something that very few of you have had happen, but it has happened. You get an email from a colleague at work, someone you do business with, telling you that your name has showed up in a news story. 
And there it is, a negative article about you and how you do your job. Holy shit, you end up sharing it with a bunch of people in your office. Maybe you got to send it to your boss. You just forward it to everybody who you think needs to know about this now. Months later, you get a scary legal threat email informing you that in sharing that news article with your colleagues, you are infringing copyright. The email comes with a bill, $17,000 for your alleged copyright infringement. That has happened. That has been happening. And it's resulted in a case that is before the courts right now. And in one person's opinion, the finance official who received that email, that invoice for $17,000 for alleged copyright infringement, it is an instance of quote unquote blackmail. But if you take the other side of this, the side of this small online news startup that sent that invoice, that sent those legal threats, news organization that you've heard about on Canada Land before called Blacklock's Reporter, it is not blackmail at all. It is about protecting their business model and not just their business model, but the business model of every news site that uses a paywall to get people to pay for news. People, you may or may not be aware that in Canada, it is illegal to break a digital lock. And no one really knows what that means. What is a digital lock? In the opinion of black locks, a paywall constitutes a digital lock. And I suppose it follows that if you do anything to get around that lock, use somebody else's password to access the content, or I suppose open up an incognito window on other services that allow you to get like 10 articles for free. I don't know, maybe you're breaking a digital lock then. The black locks case seems to suggest that it doesn't have to even be you who breaks that digital lock. If you are in possession of the stuff that's behind that lock, the news article that is behind the paywall and you share it with people, I guess you're, I don't know what, trafficking in stolen goods. This is the case that is before the courts right now. According to a lot of the coverage and black locks themselves, it is hugely consequential for the news business, for the one thing that a lot of people are turning to, to make money in news, putting up paywalls, getting people to pay for news. And we are going to discuss this with internet law expert and professor Michael Geist. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Greg Atkinson, Stefan Desrosier, Mir, Mick Sweetman, Brianna Greenow, Stephen Reimer, Shazlin Rahman, and Stephen Harrison. Stephen, why did you decide to be awesome? Uh, because you've put together a great team with the Commons Imposter and Canada Land, and I'm hearing perspectives and guests that I'm not finding anywhere else, including people of color, women, and Indigenous voices. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. 
This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by Hover.com. Hover is just the easiest way to find the perfect domain name for your great idea. One idea that uses Hover is WorkerBee, which is a startup from here in Toronto. WorkerBee works with independent artists to make inspirational prints that you would actually want to hang on your wall. These are gorgeous, by the way. Check it out. Uh, to learn more about WorkerBee and Hover, go to hover.com slash WorkerBee to see these prints. So that is one company that uses Hover. And the reason why you use Hover and not another company is that they make it very easy and affordable and the support is terrific. And they don't spam you or upsell you or do all those things that other domain providers do. So when you are ready to find a domain name for your big idea, use the promo code SANDWICH at checkout and you will save 10% off of your first order. Guys, this episode is also brought to you by Me Undies, the creator of the world's most comfortable underwear with a blend of fabric that is three times softer than cotton. I am going to assume here that everyone listening to this wears underwear. If so... You should listen to this, and I will soon be getting my first shipment of me undies underwear. So I will report back soon on uh, on how it feels because this is this is made with a material called modal, which, as they say, three times softer than cotton. Okay, looking forward to it. When you feel awesome from the inside out, you look awesome from the outside in, and when you upgrade your undies game, everyone wins. Life feels better in me undies. All orders to Canada ship for free. If you don't love your first pair, MeUndies will pay you back and you can keep that underwear for free. No questions asked. I don't know what questions they would ask. For a limited time, MeUndies is offering you 20% off of your first order. Check it out, MeUndies.com slash CanadaLand. Have a look at their prints. Have a look at this amazing fabric, this modal, MeUndies.com slash CanadaLand. And if you don't love your first pair, it is free. 20% off your first order. Use that link so they know who sent you, meundies.com slash CanadaLand. I'm not as familiar with these legal matters, copyright cases uh, as you are. It seems like a bit of a batshit case to me. Is that is that an incorrect analysis? Uh, no, that would be the non-legal analysis, but I think it would be a, a pretty fair characterization. There's been talk that this is all about somebody breaking a paywall and that paywalls are at stake from a media perspective, but that's not what's happening here at all. And in fact, it's simply someone who received an article, sent it to a couple of colleagues because it was relevant within the department, and is the department is now being sued for thousands of dollars for copyright infringement. But that is Blacklock's contention, that this is the, the, the very model itself of paywall as a revenue generator, as a way to pay for news. 
uh, is at stake. They argue that basically if the court – what this litigation is about, Holly Doan said on the stand, is about whether or not the government is allowed to circumvent their paywall. And if the government is allowed to circumvent their paywall, she argues, that's a green light for anybody to circumvent their paywall. And they've said in explicit terms, our business is done if if the court sides with their interpretation that it's okay to share our paywalled content without paying us. If that's true, paywalled news, forget about it. And I guess by extension, paywalled paid content on the internet itself. So they would say, but I, I would think that we, we need to unpack a little bit what their business model has been and whether or not government departments are trying to get around the paywall. And it, I would argue that the business model isn't about the paywall. The The issue with the business model is is how they've tried to leverage a paywall and interest in articles after they get quotes from people within government to get people to pay up. And that in the, this case, and in many of the cases, nobody from the government department tried to access the article from their site. It's simply someone else who who paid a subscription to access the article, and that paying subscriber sent a message that included the article to someone within the government. So I'm in a government agency, and a buddy of mine sends me an article. We send each other articles every day. Uh, it seems almost silly saying so. But uh, somebody says, hey, there's an article about you, and they email it to me. And then I go, oh, shit, this is a negative article about me. Let me send this to my boss and a few other people around the office. And then Blacklock says, in doing that, in sharing that around the department, you have broken our paywall. You have circumvented a technological protection measure and and uh, you've broken copyright law. What that that's that's part of what's taking place here. The actually the the issue of of technological protection measures it turns out isn't even at stake in this case at all. It wasn't pleaded in the case, and so they're really arguing that fair dealing, the Canadian version of fair use, is such that you've got no rights to share the article that you received. That you should have known that there were these restrictions on forwarding the article. There haven't been good answers from people from within Black Locks about how fair dealing applies, and we can talk about why I think fair dealing does apply here. But they're in a sense saying fair dealing doesn't really exist. You should have known that the article you received from someone had restrictions on it and that you shouldn't have sent it to a few colleagues. Oh, and by the way, uh, you may have only sent it to four or five colleagues, as is the case in this case, but we want you to pay a subscription fee for all 700 people in your organization, each individual person having to pay. All right. Uh, before we even get into fair dealing of the finer points of, of uh, copyright law and the exceptions to it, I think we have to just like explain a bit about Blacklocks. Um, and I'm going to explain it both from what I know about Blacklocks and from what the government is alleging about Blacklocks in their, in their statement of defense. They are doing a very interesting kind of journalism and they're doing legitimate journalism. They, they specialize on – their slogan is Blacklocks reporter minding Ottawa's business – and they are not there at the scrum after question period. They are not interested in the day-to-day stuff that happens in Parliament. They're doing really interesting work, A-tipping, sending access to information requests to government departments, getting all kinds of copious paperwork about contracts that the government puts out, whether or not there was competition for those contracts, how money moves around, like the fine-grained detail of what happens in Ottawa, they are running like an ATIP machine and they get all this stuff and they sort through it and they find news stories and they found great news stories. That's the kind of journalism they're doing, which I think is a really interesting kind of journalism. But then there's their business model, which is a hard 
paywall. I mean, Black Lux rarely comes up in the kind of social sharing uh, because they don't care if, if, if we all read their stuff. They don't make money off of uh, display ads. They sell subscriptions and they specialize in selling subscriptions to the same people who they cover, the government. I mean, that's, that's who is most interested in this information, uh, are the various many, many agencies and branches of government. So according to the government, Blacklocks is this copyright troll who has a strategy for their trolling. And the first few points of this strategy, this alleged strategy, struck me as kind of uh, funny and ridiculous too. And, and when I call this a batshit case, uh, it kind of goes both ways. According to the government, uh, what Blacklocks does is they request info from government departments about stories that they're investigating. Then they call these departments for quotes. And then they publish online articles about that department or agency. So far, they're describing a strategy that they say is a copyright trolling strategy. You might also call that just the strategy of doing journalism. That's just how you would report a story. But it's the next part of this alleged strategy that I find uh, pretty interesting. Uh, the government says that Blacklocks will then send a quote-unquote teaser emails to staffers in that department to entice them to read and distribute these articles, basically saying, hey, we've written an article about you. And then... Knowing, like, like Michael, if I call you and I say, hey, Michael, I've written an expose of you on Canada Land. Uh, you want to read it? You're going to have to pay. <laughs> you're going to have to pay through my paywall. And I've got a special rate for you because you're a government. You know, in, in this case, uh, they, 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 they do set different rates for their government um, prospective customers. And their customer is the same person in this case as the, as the subject of their journalism. Uh, and then they will A-tip that government department to see – if that government department got around the paywall and got that article from somebody else, and then they will either invoice them or sue them. That's what the government alleges. How much of that do we know is, is accurate or not? Uh, pretty much all of what you've said is accurate. In fact, in this case, there is an agreed upon state of facts between Blacklocks and the Department of Finance, and it includes pretty much everything you just said. Uh, <laughs> they currently have 18 lawsuits ongoing with $600,000 in damages from those 18 cases. But in fact, you should know that their use of ATIP goes even further. According to the agreed upon state of facts, they've even gone ahead and ATIPed every government department where they have a government email as a subscriber. They conduct surveillance on their government subscribers to see you've now bought a subscription. Now I want to see if you do anything with those articles that you weren't permitted to do. And so they A-tip those government email addresses that they have on file, and where they see that that email address may have sent an article to someone else, they then invoice for those additional uses or threaten lawsuits. And this is in the agreed statement of fact? Yes. That's incredible. I mean, A-tip is a very powerful and useful tool for journalists. I mean, you, you, you call it surveillance. I suppose that's kind of technically true. Yeah, we're trying to keep an eye on government. And this is – that's their express purpose is that we are minding Ottawa's business. But it seems like a great deal of their energy has been put into minding a certain very specific aspect of Ottawa's business, which is, is Ottawa sharing our content? And if so, will they pay us for that after the fact? Indeed. And uh, they've managed to generate a fair amount of money, again, from the agreed upon state of facts. Uh, they, from 2013 to 2015, generated over $50,000 uh, just from five departments alone, the Privy Council and Agriculture Canada and CMHC, the Museum of History and the Department of Justice. And we're talking about an entity that, again, in the agreed upon state of facts, is that in 2015, they took in $95,000 total in revenue. 
So this is a, a non-trivial amount that they're generating, and of course they are asking for far, far more, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the various lawsuits that they have ongoing. I'm going to try to see this from their point of view, and I'm going to give them benefit of the doubt that this isn't actually their business model, as the government uh, alleges in their statement of defense. But maybe they are trying to create a precedent that protects a paywall as a viable business model for selling news. Right. I think that certainly they are saying that what they want to do is try to protect their paywall. But I think we need to recognize that the person that's distributed a handful of copies hasn't breached any sort of paywall. In fact, uh, they haven't even necessarily gone to the website to try to access the content. All they did was receive an article from someone else. And while, of course, uh, we see paywalls being used fairly widely and those terms and conditions associated with the paywall uh, are enforceable and, and, and arguably ought to be enforced. But in this case, um, we've got someone who hasn't tried to access the paywall. And so, in fact, what, what in a sense they're trying to say is that anything that we publish has terms and conditions attached to it. Everybody ought to be aware of those terms and conditions and subject to the limitations of the contract that we've established around our content, even if you haven't entered into an agreement with us. And it seems to me that can't possibly be right. They can have license agreements with any number of subscribers creating restrictions on how their content can be used, and those will be enforceable. But for anyone else who doesn't have a contract with Blacklocks, uh, there, there is no agreement to try to enforce. And so the terms and conditions on the paywall uh, aren't enforceable as, as against the entire planet. They're enforceable against someone who either tries to access the content or alternatively, um, someone who is a subscriber, a licensed subscriber, and may have limitations on what they can do with that content. What the government will argue and is arguing is that one, this agreement, these terms are not about binding on us. We weren't a subscriber. We didn't try to access. And you can't expect every person to know the details um, of every agreement that's out there. Uh, and secondarily, uh, once they received that article, it was fair dealing to be able to send it to a handful of people, particularly given the subject matter, the content, the use that they made of it. Michael, this is like, this is giving me such deja vu. I can't even believe it. I mean, Look, you and I used to talk about this in theoretical terms, not a practical court case, but when this copyright law was being formed and fought and there were protesters and it was pulled and then reformed, when I was hosting Search Engine, you were a frequent guest on my show where we would talk about the dangers of this, this amendment, this, this uh, making it uh, basically against the law to circumvent a technological protection measure or, or DRM, digital rights management. And the very thing that we were so worried about back then was that it would criminalize or at least make illegal everyday normal activities so that it wouldn't, it wouldn't target the pirates, the people who are actually going into movie theaters with cameras and making money off this stuff. But if you happen to watch something on the wrong site or if you're using BitTorrent, so in the act of downloading something, you're also sharing it, uh, or just you receive something in your email inbox and then you share it with some other people because that's just how we do in the act of doing that, you would be breaking the law and then liable for all these huge criminal pen penalties. And I remember that when we were raising flags about that, and in my interview with uh, with uh, Jim Prentice, who hung up on me, and later when it was Tony Clement and James Moore, they, they laughed at us that, uh, that that would ever happen. That's a ridiculous extrapolation of how this law will be employed. The irony, Michael, that the people who are now accused of circumventing 
those technological protectionist measures and who are paying to settle these cases are all government agencies. I mean, the absurdity of the universe is just revealed to me in this copyright story. Well, you are you're definitely right. I mean, these are exactly the kind of issues that that we used to talk about and that we feared um, would come to the fore. And the, the concerns were that the digital lock rules, which Canada ultimately did put in place, didn't account adequately for limitations and exceptions for things like fair dealing, the Canadian version of fair use. Uh, and so that when people argued that my use of these materials are fair, the response from the rights holder might be, that's irrelevant. The fact that you circumvented one of these digital locks is itself an act of infringement. What's notable here is that, one, this issue of circumvention could come up in the future and there'll be these questions of whether or not someone who, whose use is otherwise permitted gets locked out by virtue of the digital locks. That remains a big concern and when the government reviews the copyright law next year, it may seem like we were talking about a long time ago, but they're up for another review of this law just in 2017. That's an issue that, that, that I suspect and I hope will come to the fore again as people talk about these kinds of concerns that, in fact, they have materialized. I mean, it goes on and on. The, 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 um, you know, and this might be a digression, but you know, Tony Clement is now running for a Conservative Party leadership. He was on our political show, Commons, and his whole platform is about you know, forget taxes, we're going to stimulate innovation. Uh, and make uh, make make it easier for entrepreneurs. And this is his answer for youth unemployment: is young people need to start more businesses, and we're going to make that easier. But you know, it, it fell on deaf ears when you were saying, "Well, here is something that the entire technological community is asking for. They're asking for greater versatility and freedom, with exceptions to copyright, because so many of the things that we make now are these works that are built on other works, and we need to have. Uh, there's just a proven track record that when you can, when you can repurpose things, make transformative works, that allows for innovation to take place. Uh, I, I guess you're saying that, that it's come to pass, that the, these strictures have had a negative impact on our innovation. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that they have, but I, but I think we knew it back then uh, based on real-world experiences too. When we looked at some of the most innovative companies, when the questions were always asked in Canada, how come the YouTubes or Googles or Facebooks uh, weren't started in Canada? How come those companies can't be Canadian companies? There were any number of reasons, but one of them was Canadian law was far more restrictive. Mm -hmm. And so you, if you were looking to set up one of these businesses and looking to get investors and wanting to launch, ultimately you'd consult a lawyer and talk about some of the legal risks. Your investors would consult their lawyers and talk about the legal risks. And the analysis when comparing a country like the United States that had a fair use system compared to Canada, which did not, was always that... The U.S. is facilitating fair use in a way that Canada, facilitating innovation uh, through fair use in a way that Canada isn't. And so as the as as opposition parties and candidates like Clement, but also the government itself, which, of course, has made innovation a centerpiece of of its policy priorities, uh, it's got to think about not how do we lock things down, but rather how do we ensure that there is enough flexibility in the system to ensure that those small companies can be innovative and not face threats of lawsuits before they can even get off the ground. You know, Blacklock's notwithstanding, I do want to look at, you know, to bring this back to the news situation, uh, the paywall is, there's a lot of other sites that have uh, hard paywalls, a lot of uh, independent sites, everyone from the National Observer to uh, iPolitics, uh, you know, here in Canada, the Halifax Examiner, some of these paywalls let you see a few articles, some of them let you see none. This is how a lot of my peers in, in the kind of online news startup 
uh, growing small community are trying to make a go of it. And it's also how the New York Times is trying to make money online. It's also how the Globe and Mail is, is trying and, and others. What does this Black Locks case have to do with them, if anything? And, and, and here I'm, I'm talking in a larger sense about, you know, you know uh, these kind of warnings that we got from the music industry and the movie industry way back when that unless the law dealt with people who went around pay, pay systems of any kind, unless the law made that illegal, then forget it. The Internet was not going to work for them business-wise. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I'm not convinced that, that that's necessarily the case. I think there's lots and lots of examples of people who are finding ways to have the Internet work for them that aren't reliant on that locking down of content. But, but I, I, it's a big world and there's lots of different business models. And I think it's totally fine that we find. And in fact, it's a good thing that we see that kind of experimentation. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, some will work and some won't. Um, Blacklocks would, would like to characterize this as a case that really uh, puts the future of the paywall uh, at stake. But I really don't think that that's the case, because um, if the, the cases that, that we might see in the future about the viability of paywalls and the legal enforceability of paywalls, I think will be about instances where people try to circumvent or get around those paywalls or misuse content knowingly where they're subject to those terms. Uh, but that's not what's happening here. I mean, this is, as I know some other people have characterized it, really more fundamentally about a right to read case. It's about this question of, can someone write something about me uh, or about you or about anybody? Let me know that they've written about me and then um, say, tell me that if you want to see what I've said, you've got to pay. And if you don't, <laughs> Um, well, then you won't know. But if someone happens to send you w that article, if you happen to know someone and they say, here, you Don't know what, I have this it. article, if you take that and then you distribute that out, you're still infringing copyright. And I don't want to, I'm afraid to use the word because they're litigious, but like, Michael, what else do you call it? If I told you, hey, I'm a journalist, I've got a, a website called What Michael Geist Did. And it's going to cost you $1,000 to read my article about what Michael Geist did. Pay up. Or I'll sue you if you get it some other way and, 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 and show it to your wife or your lawyer. Like, I don't know what else you call it, Michael. Uh, it, it, it rhymes with uh, schmackschmail. I don't think that there's any doubt that this is not the kind of business model that those that are supportive of paywalls really ought to be getting behind. Because to me, paywalls are all about saying we've got great content uh, that's expensive to produce. And um, if you want it, you should have to pay for it. Uh, and that's part of what Blacklock says, but then their mechanism to try to get paid in many of these instances um, is complete, it has, has little to do with the quality of the content. It's, it's essentially sort of a gotcha licensing where there are attempts to try to identify how we've used, how someone has accessed an article and using a system that I don't think was necessarily designed for that uh, and then using it to send out enormous licenses far beyond even the value of the art, even their acknowledged value of the article or the value of the license, um, and then demand payment. And of course, in some instances, and bear in mind, these are taxpayer dollars. And so uh, over those years, I mean, money coming out of a museum or money, co money coming out of a couple of government departments, taxpayer dollars, and tens of thousands of dollars coming out of these notices, presumably for an article or two that was distributed to a few people within an organization, likely based on, on what we know from this case, likely instances where the company may have called the entity to say, do you have any comment or quote? They take the time to give them the quote 
and then ultimately face invoices in the tens of thousands of dollars to find out whether or not the quote was accurately used. <laughs> and then you get to whatever they're paying for their legal defense here. So uh, this is not uh, an inexpensive business. Michael, can you handicap this one for us? Uh, how's this case going to go? And, and uh, when are we going to get a verdict? Well, the, the, the case should wrap up shortly. It's, it, even the hearing itself has gone long. Um, we're, talk, we're having this conversation on, on day four, and it may lo- run beyond even the five days that was anticipated. I think it'll take a number of months for the judge to issue a ruling. But is it, it seems to me that at the end of the day, this case is going to come down to fair dealing. I don't think the judge is, is necessarily going to do a deep dive on the copyright misuse allegations of related to black clocks. Fundamentally, it's going to be a case about does fair dealing apply? I can't envision uh, a scenario in which the judge looks looks at how this has been used and doesn't conclude that this is fair dealing. To this larger question of uh, whether this is the, 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 the fate of paywalls themselves are, are, are at stake here, you know, the, the bad guy in this story used to be the music industry or the movie industry suing people for uh, torrenting their stuff. And as far as I can tell, they've backed away from that kind of aggressive action because what they've learned and I think what works in news just as well is that it's not about the people who get around your paywall or who get around whatever DRM you've got on the content. It's, the, it's about the ones who are willing to pay. That's where your business model lies. It doesn't go into, you're not going to make your money off of getting $1,000 settlements or whatever you can get off of the person who doesn't respect the way you're trying to make, make a living. And in fact, there are studies that have shown that there's some, some value to people breaking digital locks and sharing stuff because that actually ultimately will create more people who do pay. And there's a ton of people who are making money on the on the internet selling stuff to the people who are willing to pay. This seems like maybe it's a bit of a red herring. I think that that's generally true. Of course, there the model here appears to be based on, on what we see before the courts, uh, uh, the hope that the interest that people ha- will have in your content uh, stems from the fact that it directly implicates them, indeed often directly quotes them, and so people will naturally be interested, and that's a way to try to get them to pay. On, and if they don't, use a system to try to find out whether or not they were still able to access it and then sue them if they use that material in a way that you think is offside the law. I'm, I'm all for innovative uh, business models, you know. It, it is. I should know, I, I think it is worth noting that there is one exception to the description you had about the, the absence of lawsuits, and that's, of course, in Canada, our notice and notice system, which was, I think, a, a good system as conceived, the system where, where rights holders believe there have been infringements. They can send a notification to the Internet provider who's then obligated to send it on to the subscriber, and not disclose the identity of the subscriber. But as you know, over the last year and a half since that system's been in place, it's been misused. And those notices are being used to demand settlements of people, even though the rights holder doesn't know who they are. And there are a lot of people who get very nervous very quickly. They click on the link and are paying hundreds of dollars to settle cases when under a system that was never designed to try to elicit those kinds of settlements or even include those demands. Yeah, the shakedowns are happening. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and you, you get the email and what you don't know is that, the, you know, you've downloaded something, you get an email from your internet provider and then it's it's got a, asking you for money and it's got a link. It's not until you click on that link that they know your IP address and can trace it back to you. Exactly. They don't know who you are and there's a lot of people that once they've done that though in the without really much knowledge because even the government has put, put forward FAQs that, that advise people that there's no obligation to settle, but before they've had a chance to really educate themselves about it, they panic and they hand over hundreds of dollars. And, and so that's that's another business model that we still see out there uh, here in Canada. <laughs> Canadian Innovation Online. Michael, thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jesse. 
That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime. I am at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com and our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. We offer Canada Land for free to community and campus radio stations across this country. That is handled by Russell Gregg. Commons is out on Tuesday. Check it out. They have been doing interviews with all of the candidates for the conservative leadership, and they are unlike any other interviews with these people that you're going to hear. On Wednesday, you will hear the next episode of The Imposter. Check it out. It is a good one. And on Thursday, I'll be back with Shortcuts. Friday, of course, is our newsletter, Not Sorry. If you like what we do, please support us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.